Hello, my name is Stephen Mullen. I'm a consultant who works in the Paediatric Emergency Department in Belfast and welcome to your last presentation of the day. Now this is an incredibly interesting topic in my view, so hopefully I can keep your attention for the next 30 minutes while we address the hypotensive trauma patient that will come through your A&E department and may end up in your ICU or your theatre environment. So I think it's important to start off by thinking about the trauma journey. And remember there's a significant proportion of patients who will never meet the emergency department and that is associated with this first peak. These, have these patients have catastrophic injuries and usually die at scene. So things like massive uh, head trauma, huge vessel injuries with um, significant bleeds, you've got transections of the cord, they'll never make it from scene to your ED. The next peak are the ones I do have a role in resuscitating and managing them in order to decrease morbidity and mortality. So things such as extradural, subdural hemorrhages, traumatic injuries to the chest resulting in pneumothorax or hemothorax, blood loss for whatever reason. And these are the ones that we set up our pre-hospital and hospital services in order to manage. And we think of the benefits of having our major trauma network and that hub and spoke model. There is also a third peak, which is beyond the discussion of this um, presentation, but is important to think about. So issues with multi-organ failure and sepsis and how this is in fact the trauma patient further on in their journey. Now there is some evidence to support the dangers associated with hypovolemic shock and hypotension in trauma patients. And this is a really nice single, single centre study involving 134 paediatric patients looking at the all causes of mortality. Unsurprisingly, traumatic brain injury is first with anoxia second and catastrophic hemorrhage third with all patients dying as a consequence of bleeding doing so in the first six hours. And this really supports the attention we need to pay to that second uh, peak in the, in the previous graph and how we need to set up our emergency services right from the assessment at scene through to ICU and theatre in order to maximise the benefits and long-term prognosis for these patients. And we think of hypotension, it's important to recognise that there's a change in vital signs with age and this means it can be difficult to remember. What we would commonly use is cutoff is less than the fifth centile or if they're over the age of 10, somewhere between uh, systolic of 90 with a diastolic of 50 and ATLS have a really nice formula which is uh, 2 times the age plus 70 or 80. Now there's a huge amount of apps such as the Peds Emergency app um, or your APLS charts which clearly identify this cutoff of your fifth centile. So have your resource room set up so that you can define hypotension in these patients. It's important we have an awareness of how critically unwell these hypotensive trauma patients are, or just basically any paediatric patient that is hypotensive. These are pre-terminal signs and should be treated as such. So ATLS will say that in order to drop the blood pressure, our paediatric population will have to lose between 26 and 39% of the circulating blood volume. Now remember that for every kilo, there's about 70, 80 mils of blood circulating around our young people. So for average five-year-old, it weighs about 20 kilos, that's about one and a half litres. It doesn't take a massive amount to equate to a significant percentage loss. 
And this is very different than our adult population and they will drop their blood pressure after about a 10% blood loss. So often these patients will initially present well and then fall off this cliff. So if you see a patient who's clinically shocked or certainly a trauma patient who is hypotensive, treat them with the care and respect that they need. Think about getting your team together and resuscitating them aggressively. And one of the key things and one of the most important things you can do is get the basics right. So think about how we approach our trauma patients and how the algorithm changes slightly. So instead of having our ABC approach, we have our C in front of it looking at catastrophic hemorrhage. The evidence has come from Camp Bastion that if you forget the catastrophic hemorrhage and move on to airway, the patient will be dead by the time you try and stop their bleeding. So if they have an obvious bleed, try and stem that either with the use of pressure, pressure dressings, pro uh, coag agents or the use of tourniquets. Think about how you're set up in order to manage the arrival of these patients. These beautiful red phones which can ring through the department and seem to prick everybody's ear up no matter what you're doing are really important. But also remember that a significant proportion up to 20-30% will arrive without a pre warning. The parents will simply scoop and run and how is your department set up in order to manage those patients? Think about who's in your trauma team, how you activate them, what parameters you use. Do you have a CODA system for certain traumas and a more extensive one for more severe injuries? And SIMIT. SIM is a really important learning modality, particularly in these rare high acuity cases. Who do you need? Who's going to do the intervention that's required? And how are you going to manage these patients and where are they going to go? Have an open mind to what the ideology is. By far and away, the most common reason are trauma patients or hypertensive is as a result of hypovolemic shock due to ongoing blood loss. Think of where that bleeding can be during your assessment is it in the chest wall, the abdomen, the pelvis, the long bone, are they actively bleeding or have the bled out substantially at the scene of the injury and you're missing that. Think about your obstructive causes. Do they have a tension hemothorax or a massive hemothorax? Do they have a pericardial tamponade as a result of a vessel injury with blood around the heart and how you manage those? Who's going to put in your chest drain? Who's going to do your thoracostomy? And who's going to do your clamshell thoracotomy if needed? With a massive increase in knife crime and penetrating injuries to the chest, your department needs to be set up to do these interventions. And if you wait for that patient to arrive before you decide who's going to do it, you've missed the boat. This needs to be planned well in advance with clear rules assigned. Think of neurogenic shock, how this is such a representation but differs in terms of what you are required to do in order to resuscitate and manage these patients. Think of your other ideologies that might be at play. Your patient may have been involved in a road traffic action while they were going for a medical assessment and have another reason why they're hypotensive. Incredibly rare, but an open mind certainly benefits all. Now let's get on to the cases. So the first case we're going to discuss is a four-year-old male. Your red phone goes in the middle of your apartment. Everybody runs to see what happens. The handover you get is in the form of an ash ice, which is well known and an easy way in order to get the pertinent information over to the receiving team. So four-year-old male, RTC, carvers, pedestrian, potential head injury with loss of consciousness. He has some concerns of abdominal and pelvic injury. The patient is tachycardic, has prolonged cap refill time, and they've defined him as being hypotensive with a GCS of 14 over 15. And they're going to arrive in your department in five minutes. And these five minutes are key 
in my opinion, probably the most important part of your resuscitation is pre-brief. This is how you get your information to your team. You find out who's in your team and what they can do. You do the shared mental model where you communicate what injuries you suspect and what interventions might be required. I think it's really important at this stage that you ask everybody's level of seniority and what interventions they can do. There is no point in putting your ST1 in general paediatrics on B if you've got a suspected significant chest injury and you're going to need to put a chest strain on. So what person goes with each part of your assessment? Anticipate your injuries and this is based on your pre-hospital handover and the mechanism of injury. Do I think there's going to be an obstructive airway? Do I think there's going to need to be an a chest being put in. Do I think there's going to need a pelvic binder? And share this with your team and have your ABC plan in place. So your A plan is the one where you anticipate your injuries, you address them and you move to CT or every injury and on to your ultimate destination. But your B plan might be, well, the patient might lose their airway. What are we going to do then? Or we might have significant hypotension or the hypotension doesn't respond to blood products. How are we going to manage this? And if you can discuss this clearly in your pre-brief, have this lovely shared mental model, it will certainly be a benefit to how the resuscitation is going to run. And in this five minutes, you're going to be activating or getting people prepared to do a huge amount of interventions. For the hypotensive trauma patient, I'm going to activate my major hemorrhage protocol. And if I don't do it, I'll have somebody else to do it. Use closed loop communication that feeds back to me to make sure that I know that it's been activated appropriately. This means reading blood blanks, plus or minus porters, and giving for us an estimated weight, which will dictate what volume of packs we're going to get. While I'm waiting, I'm going to get O negative blood ready, which in my department is kept in theatre, so I need to assign somebody to run to get that to bring it down. And not only do I want the blood ready, but I want the blood warmed. Hypothermia is horrible in trauma patients, so either use your level 1 transfusion or whatever hotline that you have in order to make sure your fluids that are given are warmed. And in my department we practice blood out, blood in, so we don't give saline or any other form of crystallized. Initially we're going to use blood products and that's certainly something we would advocate. For suspected pelvic injuries, I want someone to have the binder ready to go on. And these are really part of your resuscitative procedures and shouldn't be basically left to the last minute and I've been recently involved in a case where a binder has been removed resulting in a pelvic uh, blood loss where the systolic blood pressure went from 120 to 60 with over oh, about a two minute duration. So not only think about how the binder is put on but when the binder is going to come off and who makes that decision. Have your TXA ready in the form of your bolus and your own one infusion if required. And these patients are usually cold and clapped up clapped out access is incredibly difficult so have somebody assigned to use an IO. Remember if there's suspect pelvic or femoral injury you want to go above the level of the fracture so you're really thinking of a humerus and how you assess this and this is relatively easier in your older patient you got less but in your younger chubbier patients it can be more difficult. TXA is something that we use in pediatric trauma and the evidence has filtered through from our adult colleagues. Now there's a growing level of evidence and some RTCs are starting to recruit I think in the Northern Hemisphere but a really nice systematic review and meta-analysis support us the benefit in our trauma patients but also uh, also reports the concerns with the thromboembolic events we have if given in a prolonged duration. So we like to give them in the first three hours of injury at 15 milligrams per kilo followed by a transfusion if required. Now, there's some elements of practice that we don't uh, take from our other colleagues and certainly permissive hypotension is one of them. Now this principle 
relies on the general, the general agreed assumption that the first clot best clot principle. If you increase the blood pressure too early, you blow off the clot and you bleed out. And for most adults, severe trauma, they'll aim for a palpable pulse or a blood pressure of 80 or 90 systolic within the first hour. As mentioned before, it takes a large blood loss for a pediatric population to drop their BP. So if they're hypotensive, it's a preterminal sign and resuscitate aggressively. We do not practice permissive hypotension in the pediatric population. The adolescents are less clear, but certainly I don't practice in my adolescents and there's some evidence to suggest that it's probably better not to do so. Think of hypothermia and be ready to manage it. I live in a cold, damp country where the patient will usually be lying at the roadside before they're picked up. The mode of transport to my hospital is usually not insulated, it's cold and damp. When they arrive in my any department, we take all their clothes off to expose them looking for any injuries. The door may be opened, there may be a draft coming in and the patients will get more hypothermic. So prep someone, have your bear hugger ready, have blankets ready, have warm fluids, including blood, get your temperature measured as part of your initial observations and try and uh, get it to an acceptable normal level. We know hypothermia is part of the lethal triad of trauma along with coagulopathy and metabolic acidosis, so try and address it early. As part of your ABC plan, you're going to be thinking about destination where these patients are going to add up the two options for me are usually CT to theater or ICU or to ward if everything stabilizes or in the very rare cases straight to theater. I would suggest a little bit of caution on taking your patients straight to theater. If you've got concerns about polytrauma or head injury, I would be more reassured if they're going a lot, if they're about to go under a long operation that their CT uh, head doesn't show an extra gerald or significant subdural that requires evacuation. And another area that we differ from our adult colleagues is the use of imaging. So we're aware of the lower principles as low as reasonably achievable in order to reduce the risk of long-term malignancy associated with radiation exposure. And there's a huge amount of evidence supporting the use of targeted CTs as opposed to PAN scan. And I often think we do PAN scans because we're not 100% sure in our clinical findings or the mechanism of injury and we feel that a PAN scan means that we're not missing anything. This is not the case. The scan is only a single image in time. The patient can deteriorate with a normal scan, so don't be reassured by a normal PAN scan. And I would strongly advocate that we should do targeted CT. And it might be that you need a CT head, neck, chest, abdomen, pelvis, but you should be able to argue this for your case. And in this case, which was the RTC, um, the main concern was an abdominal injury. So they had a CT abdomen. Now I'll give you a few seconds to have a look at these images. So my wife's a radiologist who I tried to drag in to report this, but uh, somehow managed to decline. But we put a few images on to show you the pertinent features. So the first red arrow shows some blood around the liver. Second one shows a spleen that has just been essentially completely knackered or ruptured. And the third one shows some blood around the kidney. If you work in a large multidisciplinary uh, team as part of your resuscitation, you should get a hot debrief. But I think it's a reasonable thing to have some awareness of how to read a CT scan in our trauma patient. This patient done really well and stabilized in our emergency department quite quickly and was transferred to the surgical ward for ongoing management. And this 
really shows another key difference and a lot of our visceral injuries in our pediatric population will be managed conservatively and will not go to theatre. Now there's a small proportion that will require theatre in order to switch off the tap and your team should be ready or your surgeons and your theatre and ICU team should be ready for such eventualities. In this case he had strict bed rest and was discharged after peter observation and done actually really well. The next case we're going to discuss is again a road traffic accident and this involved a 12 year old male with a head on collision with another car. He was wearing a seatbelt and restrained and was concerned about a head injury, abdominal and potential pelvic injuries. Your pre-hospital handover said that he's tachycardic with a prolonged capillary refill time, there was some, evidence, there was some hypotension, uh, GCS was 14 over 15 and was complaining of ongoing chest pain and he had about five minutes before he was going to arrive in your emergency department. Now whenever they arrived there was ongoing concerns, there was a brief loss of pulse or severe hypertension that responded really well uh, to blood transfusion. And when he arrived in the department he was really stable, was chatty, had some chest wall um, pain but no obvious tenderness. So as part of our uh, initial management we decided to offer some plain films. Now this isn't this patient's plain film. Um, because in this case actually we went straight to CT but if we done a plain film this is what it showed. Now the big take home for me from this is that wide immediate stinum which makes me think of some potential in injury to the great vessels. And so this is the patient's actual CT scan. So I'm going to give you a few seconds to have a look to try and identify what you think ROA, B and C may be. So let's start off with ROB and this is the patient's thoracic aorta and you can see there's been damage to the wall and it almost looks like two round circles together. One of them represents a pseudoaneurysm. ROA is blood around the heart or pericardial effusion in this case um, hemorrhagic and ROC is a hemothorax or uh, some fluid around the base of the lungs. Now this patient had a transection where they bled into the heart and into the lung cavity and there's a small clot which was essentially keeping this patient from bleeding to death. And you have a variety of different injuries that can occur to your thoracic uh, aorta depending on what is damaged, going from a small internal tear right through to your pseudoaneurysm and your active rupture. And these are incredibly rare injuries. There's not a huge amount of literature I could find about it. This was a single study. Um, this was a study in a single centre with a 10-year review of their aortic injuries and they only picked up 11 cases, eight of which were a consequence of a road traffic accident, seven which were thoracic with the other four being abdominal. Out of those seven, four were transsections, two an internal flap and one a senior aneurysm. And his presentation was reasonably typical and I just recently taught it on a European trauma course which essentially was identical to what he would, he presented as. Usually from road traffic accident with this massive deceleration because of the seatbelt you've got the ligament arteriosus which is tethered to the aorta um, and that's where the tear happens. It can be associated with a brief loss of output that responds really well to fluids and the, how we manage this 
depends on whereabouts the injury is. The more proximal ones usually require surgery and the distal ones uh, can be managed conservatively with uh, blood pressure management and will require ICU input. This case was incredibly complex. And the difficulty I had is that I worked in a pediatric trauma center that didn't have pediatric cardiothoracics. The other potential avenues such as interventional radiology and vascular surgery didn't have equipment and that would fit this patient. And there was an option of transferring him down to Dublin, which was about a two hour drive on bumpy roads in an ambulance with a small clot that was keeping this patient alive. And if he lost his output en route, there's pretty much nothing anyone could do in order to save him. So we decided to ditch that idea quite quickly. And we ended up having was a seven specialty multidisciplinary team meeting with all the experts in the room until the cardiothoracics thankfully agreed to take on the theater in order to operate and uh, remove the damaged section graft and, and observe oh this really taught me was the importance of bringing the key players in to a room together in these very rare events in which mortality is potentially quite high bringing all the leads so the senior regs and consultants in one room really had a huge benefit to this patient and probably saved his life now the last case we're going to discuss is again road traffic accidents and road traffic accidents are by far and away the most common reason why kids get injured. The age is slightly different and this was an infant who was in a, an appropriate car seat and involved in a high speed RTC and there was multiple adult, not fatalities, but severely injured people at scene. And this isn't a picture but it was something similar. Your pre-hospital team are worried about prolonged cap refill time and they're hypertensive. And also the car seat, uh, whenever they arrived, they showed you that the car seat had a big crack in the back of it, indicative of the amount of pressure and force that went through it. Your initial assessment is pretty uneventful of this patient and you see multiple abrasions, but no obvious severe injuries and your catastrophic hemorrhage right through your e-assessment doesn't bring a huge amount of concerns. However, your vital signs are concerned. The patient is hypertensive with a normal or slightly low blood or um, heart rate. You decide to do some fluid resuscitation in the form of blood products, as mentioned before, and it's really a poor response. So because the patient is so unwell, you decide to intubate early and perform some imaging, which includes CT scan. And at all times, you're doing ongoing resuscitation and reassessments. And in some cases, you decide to start with a plain film. And you should all have some skills in how to read a lateral C-spine x-ray. I'll give you a few seconds just to have a look to see if you identify any abnormalities. Yeah. Now hopefully you've picked up at the level C5, C6 there's a loss of your anterior and posterior vertebral lines. Now remember your spinal cord lies between your posterior vertebral line and your spinal lumbar line. So this posterior displacement can have a huge consequence to how much damage is done to this patient's cord. In this case, actually, we went straight to CT scan, and please remember these aren't this patient's actual images, but taken from Radiopedia, but can show the severe damage that we can see uh, to the patient's vertebral bodies. And if you've got neurology or concerns about a cord injury, in order to visualize the cord, you're going to be um, performing an MRI which is very difficult to get out of hours and might mean the patient needs to stay in even if there's no neurology to get the MRI done the next day.
This patient had an emergency MRI which showed severe damage to the cord, quite high in the cervical spine. And so subsequently a presentation of neurogenic shock. And I've only ever seen a few cases of neurogenic shock in my, uh, not only in my pediatric career, but in, even when I worked in an adult emergency department. And how the patient presents will be determined by the level of the injury. Anything that's high in the cervical cord, it's going to knock out your respiratory center as well as causing bradycardia and hypotension. Those injuries that are just above T2 or above T2, certainly you'll have a loss or an imbalance between your parasympathetic and your sympathetic tone, resulting in a loss of um, resulting in vasodilatation as well as bradycardia. So these patients may have lost blood as well as this, but if it's just a spinal cord injury, their hypotension is due to an issue with their vessels and not blood loss. If the injury is just above T6, you'll have hypotension. And please be aware of the difference between neurogenic and spinal shock, which we're not going to talk in detail in this, um, in this presentation, but certainly is worth having a read around. And the management of these patients are different than your other hypertensive trauma patients and will involve liaison with your ICU and anaesthetic colleagues early. You're going to think about using vasopressor and inotropic agents in order to address their needs. Also be aware that their significant portion of paediatric trauma, approximately 7% are polytrauma, so they'll have more than one system injured. And as well as using these agents to try and address a neurogenic shock, you might need to do aggressive fluid resuscitation in the form of blood to address their other injuries. And the whole goal of this is order to try and pervert preserve as much spinal cord function as you can and to prevent the secondary injury almost as we would do for traumatic brain injuries. So try and get a decent blood pressure to make sure you've got some perfusion of this cord. The ASA chart is really important for those patients who have got suspected or confirmed spinal cord lesion. Now in A&E we don't necessarily need to do this but somebody will do it in those who have got neurology either that orthopedic or spinal team and this will involve assessment of the dermatomes and myotomes and the reflexes in order to give you a rough idea of where the lesion is. And one of the most important things we need to recognise is the dangers of these patients having pressure ulcers which can still occur in a paediatric population. It only takes approximately 30 minutes before pressure so it will develop, but in some patients, it can take up to six months to heal. And this has huge implications in terms of how we rehabilitate these patients. So when the patient's being log roll, your, you, whoever's doing the spinal check or your nursing staff should be cleaning off any of the debris that all these patients bring in them in order to try and preserve tissue viability and prevent these horrible lesions. Now let's bring it all to a close with a lovely summary slide. So when we talked about initially about how we define hypotension and how this can be difficult in our pediatric population. So use your adjuncts either at apps or wall charts in order to find that fifth centile cutoff. Think of hypotension as a pre-terminal sign of resuscitate aggressively depending on what the ideology is. And as of all resuscitation, preparation is key. Those five to 10 minutes before the patient arrives can really set your team up as to how you're going to manage this complex case. Use your multidisciplinary team wisely and to the benefit of the patient. And if the case doesn't go particularly well for whatever reason, then sim it so that everybody learns. By far and away, hypovolemic shock is the most common and you'll need to be 
uh, you need to be able to activate your major hemorrhage protocol, think about how you get TXA down, um, how you're going to stop any sort of catastrophic hemorrhage. But also be aware that other differentials are really important and don't get sidetracked and go down one avenue. So I'd like to thank you for listening to me. I hope you enjoyed this presentation and all the presentations today. And I'll open up to panel discussion.